2005, Baker Book House, Baker Publishing Company out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, published a book by Dr. Mark Knoll, former professor at Wheaton College for 27 years, now professor at Notre Dame University, the title of which is, Is the Reformation Over? Is the Reformation Over? Dr. Knoll in that book goes through a rather lengthy examination of that question, and uh, I'll let you read the book so that you can come to uh, what you think is his determination to answer that question. But that is not an insignificant question. In fact, it's being asked all over the place these days. Is the Reformation over? Other questions, maybe not expressed exactly like this, but in this uh, line of thought, or was the Reformation a mistake in the first place? Somehow, perhaps, was it just all one big misunderstanding that could have been worked out if sensible people hadn't gotten their passions and egos so inflamed and involved? Was that great traumatic event all a big mistake? And now, with 500 years of hindsight, can we look back on it and conclude that indeed the Reformation is over. One of the roles of a teaching elder, in fact, the role of all elders, is given for us in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. But Paul is talking about qualifications for an elder. And he says to Titus that an elder must be one who is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. For two reasons, Paul says, number one, that the elder may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. And then secondly, that he might be able to refute those who contradict. Teaching in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict the truth. I have been teaching you for the past eight weeks sound doctrine in Romans chapter three and four. Justification by faith alone. But this morning, I want to take time to fulfill that other aspect of an elder, and that is to refute those who contradict. This is not a pleasant task. I take no joy in doing this. But for the health of the church... Compelled to deal with these things. In the process this morning, I am going to name some names, provide some examples, cite some direct quotations from the writings of certain individuals. Some of these men have been very instrumental in my own theological pilgrimage and formulation over the years. They have written some very helpful things. By calling out their names and by pointing out their profound error, I am in no way making a public comment 
about their spiritual condition before God. So let me make sure that you understand that. Okay? I am not opining on how they stand before Christ. That is between them and Christ. But I am going to point out the profundity of their errors. I'm also going to speak this morning about Roman Catholic doctrine. I have no animus towards people who are involved in Roman Catholicism. They are men and women, boys and girls, born into this world, created in the image of God, and desperately in need of salvation. I do not hate Catholics. Let me make that as clear as I can. But I am going to point out the profound and deadly errors involved in at least one critical aspect of Roman Catholicism. So those are my boundaries this morning, okay, as we begin together. This is going to be different than things that we have done around here probably in a good long time. I need you to work with me this morning. By the grace of God, I can make it plain. But by the grace of God, you will work hard to understand what it is that I'm trying to say. We have to enter into some areas of theology that are going to test you. I suppose in one sense, it's kind of like an exam. Have you learned anything in the last eight weeks? But beyond that... You're going to have to think sharply with me because the same terms are being used, but they are being redefined. And so you have to listen. When I mention a term, I'll define it in an example in the way that it's being redefined. But you're going to have to, going to, have to pay attention so that you don't pour your definition into it. Because if you do, then you won't understand what the problem is at all. So you've got to think. Okay, This morning is a thinking time. So please... Ask the Spirit of God to help you, to be alert, pay attention, and to think. There are dangers, not on the horizon, beloved. They are in the camp. They are in the camp. Someone asked me earlier to make it clear, so I will. I'm not talking about them right here within Foothill Bible Church, okay? I'm talking about the camp of evangelicalism. Dangers. And they come from three different sources. But they all ultimately arrive at the same place. And that is an overturning of sola fide and a leading of evangelicals back to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. If we lose sola fide, let me just say it right out on the front here. If we lose this, we will end up in Rome. This is the issue over which Luther said the church stands or falls. We are not making mere theological quibblings. We're talking about the gospel. Now, maybe you think I'm exaggerating the, the dangers involved here, the significance of all the issues, but let me assure you I am not. Earlier this year, it was shocking, but true, that the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, kind of the premier 
theological society for evangelicals, that which gathers together once a year and presents all kinds of scholarly papers. Dr. Francis Beckwith, associate professor of church state studies at Baylor University, abandoned sola fide and converted to Roman Catholicism. That's the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, lest you think still, well, it's just all out there and everything's fine here. Earlier this year, I, along with one of the other pastors, spent a number of hours pleading, begging, pouring over the scriptures, doing everything I could do to convince a woman from this church not to abandon sola fide and to convert to Roman Catholicism, and I was unsuccessful. This is a real issue. A real issue. I've given you a handout. It looks different than handouts you're typically used to getting. I struggled over this. I, get, I filled it in for you. <laughs> and there was so much more I could have written. But I tried to write something that you could carry away with you and, and come back to this, okay? So don't worry about taking a lot of notes. Just listen. Okay? Just listen. I want to highlight with you three contemporary threats to the doctrine of sola fide, which, if embraced, will ultimately destroy our motivation for evangelism. If we embrace any one of these threats, you can call the evangelists home. What are they? Number one, evangelicals and Catholics together. E-C-T as it is commonly abbreviated. Evangelicals and Catholics together. This was a, a document, a paper that was co-authored and released in 1994. It's called, it's a full title, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. It was an anticipation of entering into this millennium in which we now find ourselves. This document, as I say, was co-authored by both well-known evangelicals and Roman Catholic theologians. What does the document say? Well, I've given you a quote. I'm going to read you some quotes this morning, so listen. The document begins, we are evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics who have been led through prayer, study and discussion to common convictions about Christian faith and mission. This statement cannot speak officially for our communities. It does intend to speak responsibly from and that should be our I apologize, our communities and to our communities. We together, evangelicals and Catholics, confess our sins against the unity that Christ intends for all his disciples. That is a shocking statement. The one Christ and one mission includes many other Christians, notably the Eastern Orthodox and those Protestants not commonly identified as evangelical. Read liberal. We affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Stop right there. This is authored by Roman Catholic theologians and evangelicals. 
We affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Words have to be carefully examined. All who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow. Is the Reformation over? Was it just a big mistake? One billion Roman Catholics now... Don't worry about evangelism. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. That we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Beloved, we do not think clearly in this generation. We are very, very sloppy in the way we think and consequently we are very, very sloppy in the way we speak. We speak in compressed phrases. We speak in shorthand. We do not speak precisely. And particularly when it comes to theology, we do not speak precisely. And what that means is that two and three and four people can use the same terms, same expressions, and have all kinds of different meanings associated with them. And if you take it with your meaning in it, the same words that someone else voices, all of a sudden you come to the conclusion together that all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely not. That is not true. It is not true. Are Catholics and evangelicals brothers and sisters in Christ? When a Protestant and a Catholic declare that they are justified by grace through faith because of Christ, do they mean the same thing? No, they do not. They do not. Roman Catholic theology affirms that we are saved by grace through faith. But they deny that it is by faith alone. They deny that it is by faith alone. As the means by which a believer is linked to Christ and declared righteous in the sight of God. Rome teaches that the believer receives the grace of justification when at their baptism righteousness is infused or poured into them. This process for Rome is initiated by faith. Later, when the justification is lost through sin, it is restored through faith in the sacrament of penance. That is Roman Catholic theology. That is what they mean when they say that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Is that what Paul says in Romans chapters 3 and 4? Is that what we have learned together in the last eight weeks? No, it is not. Time for a little lesson in historical theology. After the liberating truth of sola fide broke out across Europe in the 16th century, 
The Roman Catholic Church launched what was called the, or is called the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation. Much of the theological underpinnings for the Counter-Reformation were drawn from the Council at Trent. The Council of Trent where Roman Catholic theologians met over the course of many years, from 1545 to 1563. And coming out of that, that conference specifically, or council rather, specifically convened to provide arguments and battlements to, to overcome the Protestant Reformation. Coming out of that council were many, many pronouncements. Let me read just three pieces of three of them, if I can say it that way. At the council, the following pronouncements were made. You find this, by the way, in any history book. Okay. Quote, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That is, cursed of God. Damned to hell. Quote, If anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone or by the remission of sins alone, to the exclusion of the grace and love that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, read infusion, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Quote, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. At the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church damned the gospel to hell and all who will believe their teachings. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's fine, that was the 16th century. People spoke strongly in the 16th century. Things have changed. There have been other councils. Vatican I. Most recently, Vatican II. Coming from 1962 to 1965 brought about all kinds of change in the Catholic Church. Or at least that's the party line. Maybe it lifted these anathemas. I wish that were true. But it is not true. It is not true. The Council of Vatican II quoted from and endorsed the work of Trent. There are numerous citations throughout Vatican II. I have a big, fat book in my office with the documents of Vatican II. If you've got nothing to do and you want to read something, you can read them. Because Trent was an official council of the church. And so you need to understand this about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is unreformable. 
And the reason it is unreformable or irreformable, I'm not sure which is the right way to say that. Spellchecker didn't like it either way. <laughs> irreformable. Because they are irreformable, or the reason they are, is because their pronouncements and counsels, according to their understanding, are spoken when, when the, the Pope and the council are speaking directly for Christ. And God doesn't change His mind. And neither does the church. They are, by definition, authoritative and irreformable in their pronouncements. Trent is still very much in force. Now, to keep you engaged, I gave you a little, couple of little equations here on your handout. Okay? As we go through this, I'm going to try to boil some things down into some small takeaways for you. So a couple of little equations. Faith plus works equals, fill in the blank, justification, according to Rome. Faith plus works equals justification. That is the Roman view. The biblical view is that faith equals justification plus works. A justified sinner before Christ by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to him and the imputation of his guilt to Christ produces a new man in Christ who will necessarily bring forth good works. There is a slander out there that Protestantism or biblical Christianity teaches that faith equals justification minus works. That is not true. If there are no works of righteousness, there is no justification, according to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Okay, so just keep those two little equations. Maybe that'll help you sort things out. Now, who are the evangelical signers and endorsers of this document, ECT? They are names that you know. I'm going to read you some of these names. Again, I'm not making judgments on them before Christ. I'm just telling you who they are. Because they're influential. Charles Colson, founder and president of Prison Fellowship. Dr. Bill Bright, former president and founder of Campus Crusade, now home to be with the Lord. Dr. Oz Guinness from the Trinity Forum. Dr. Richard Mao, I believe that's how it's pronounced, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Mark Knoll, 27 years professor of church history at Wheaton College, now at the Jesuit School of Notre Dame. Dr. J.I. Packer, Regent College in British Columbia. The Reverend Pat Robinson. Robertson, I'm sorry. Pat Robertson, the TV guy. Okay? Regent University. There are others, but those I think you'll know. What are the, some of the factors that led them to formulate such a document as this? I mean, you've you got to scratch your head and you've and you got to say, what in this world is going on? Some of these were the best and brightest lights. Well, from the document itself, we get a clue, okay? So we're not... Trying to read tea leaves here from the document itself. We get a clue, quote, together we contend for the truth that politics, law and culture must be secured by moral truth. With the founders of the American experiment, we declare, quote, we hold these truths, close the quote. 
With them, I'm still quoting them, with them, we hold that this constitutional order is composed not just of rules and procedures, but is most essentially a moral experiment. With them, that is the founders, we hold that only a virtuous people can be free and just, and that virtue is secured by religion. To propose that securing civil virtue is the purpose of religion is blasphemous. When you say religion, by the way, back then when they're, they're using the terminology of the founding fathers, they're talking about Christendom. To deny that securing civil virtue is a benefit of religion is blindness. So what is that all about? What that all is all about is that they are seeing the rapid deterioration of the American experiment. This society is falling apart, and they're absolutely right. It is falling apart. Godlessness is reigning supreme. There's no question about it. So for some, it is done in response to their observation and concern that America is falling apart and that what is going on is that the church is silent in regard to that and is spending all its time arguing with each other over a point of doctrine which they do not believe is an essential point of doctrine. So why don't we stop arguing with each other and start turning towards the secularists that are tearing this country apart? That's the line of thinking. For others... It was the experience of worshiping together in the charismatic movement and working together in political causes such as the anti-abortion movement. Kind of goes like this. You're standing on the picket line outside an abortion clinic and you're linking arms and the person next to you is Roman Catholic and you come from an evangelical church and you spend day after day, hour after hour protesting this, this horrible, barbaric evil of the slaughter of the innocents and you begin to talk, you begin to make friendships together, you begin to, to share common interests. You begin to even talk about the Bible together. You talk about your children and you sing the same songs. And, and pretty soon you're friends. And there's no way that you're going to let a little issue of theology, which you probably don't really understand anyway, or if you do, you don't think it's all that important to stand in the way. Why did J.I. Packer sign it? He gave us the answer. Quote, I signed it because it affirms positions and expresses attitudes that have been mine for half a lifetime and that I think myself called to commend to others every way I can. Granted, for the same half lifetime, I have publicly advocated the reformed theology that was first shaped by Calvin in opposition to Rome teaching about salvation and the church and that stands opposed to it still. Which, I suppose, is why some people have concluded that I have gone soft theologically and others think I must be ignorant of Roman Catholic beliefs and others guess that I signed ECT without reading it. <laughs> Continuing, but we need to put sola fide in small print because it is no longer one of the large print issues that ought to divide us. Nor should it divide us in common mission. That's stunning. That is absolutely stunning by J.I. Packer. That guy who has written so many helpful books.
the danger, the danger of all of this is that these are highly respected men. These are very influential men. Very influential. And what has happened is they have allowed the social evils and the cultural threats to Western civilization, and they are many and they are great. They have allowed them to blind their eyes to the eternal danger of losing the gospel. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose what? His own soul. I am not advocating the downfall of America. Okay? I don't know what God's doing in this country. But the preservation of Western society in the American experiment is not the issue. It is individual souls, one by one, whether they are made right before God. His kingdom is not of this world. You don't mind hanging around a while, do you? Because I've only got one and I've got two more to go. I feel the Spirit moving. Okay? Lock the doors. Okay, the next one you're going to have to work a little harder at. The next danger is what's called the new perspectives on Paul. The new perspectives on Paul, or NPP, as it is commonly found. This is a relatively recent phenomena, or at least as it is so designated, and that is a self-designation term, by the way. The new perspectives on Paul is a self-designation, so this is not something that I put on them. Okay? And what it is, is it's, a, it's a, a loose confederation of New Testament scholars who have challenged the historic understanding of first century rabbinic Judaism and the Apostle Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. What they're saying is, is that we're reading the New Testament wrong and that we have been reading it wrong for 500 years. The two most influential spokesmen for the new perspectives is a man by the name of James D.G. Dunn, excuse me, Dunn, D-U-N-N. He is a British New Testament scholar. His massive two-volume commentary on Romans was published by Word Publishing. Okay, and it is massive. It's down in our library. The other gentleman is N.T. Wright, another British New Testament scholar, and he is a prolific author and a very effective communicator. Both of these men have been influenced by another by the name of E.P. Sanders, former professor at Duke University, recently retired. Behind Sanders lies a, a string of authors that stretch back into the early uh, 20th century and then even into the late 19th century that have put forward uh, higher criticism. Text, uh, I, I'm going to get lost if I start down this path. Destructive higher criticism, which basically seeks to undermine the authority of the Scripture, the inerrancy of the Scripture. What they say is, the more radical ones, is that we do not have the words of Jesus in the Gospels. They are unreliable. They have been communicated to us through second and third parties, second and third generations. We don't know what Jesus said. That's the most radical form of it. That has now moved over into, into the studies of, of Paul and they're saying that we don't have Paul's letters, or at least some of them are not his letters. And the ones that he did write, we have completely misunderstood. Okay? So what they've said is the whole New Testament has been misunderstood by the evangelical church for the last 500 years, but they are going to correct it. 
Their heart of their assertion is that the reformers misunderstood Paul's conflict with the first century Judaism. And that they are imposing, the reformers that is, imposed their misunderstandings and, and disputes with Rome onto the pages of Paul in the New Testament. And that thus Luther, Calvin, and all the rest of them have misread the New Testament and we have followed in their shoes. Specifically, they say that the Judaism of Paul's day was not a religion of, of self-righteousness that taught salvation by merit. It was not that. Paul's argument, they say, with the Judaizers was not about a works-based righteousness view of salvation over against a Christian view of salvation by grace through faith alone. Instead, what they say is that Paul's concern with the Jewish people of his day was a concern for the status of Gentiles within the church. And that justification is all about Jew and Gentile together in one body. So when Paul speaks critically of Jewish works of the law, for example, Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What, they, uh, what Paul is criticizing, they say, is the Jewish law-keeping rituals and symbols that excluded Gentiles from participation with Jews in the community of believers, the covenant community of believers. And that it is not about how an individual is made right with their Creator. It's about unity. It's all about unity. So when Paul says righteousness is by faith in Christ, he's not talking about how a sinner is made right individually with their Creator. He is talking about salvation being open to all people without respect to whether they're Jewish or Gentile. Quote from N.T. Wright. Listen carefully. By the gospel, he's not going to define the gospel for us. By the gospel, Paul does not mean justification by faith. He means the announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord. To believe this message, to give believing allegiance to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, is to be justified in the present by faith. In other words, Paul's writings do not describe how a person gets into God's forgiven family. It is a declaration that they are in. I'm getting the same looks from you that I got from my wife when I tried this out on her a few nights ago. So hopefully um, that dialogue will profit you. So let me keep going. Let me give you an example and an illustration. Okay, try this out. Here's the example. According to NPP, New Perspectives, a person is made right with God by coming into the covenant community, read the church, okay, the church uh, universal. Okay? So you're made right by God by coming into this covenant community. How do you get into the covenant community to be made right with God? Entrance is by the sacrament of baptism. So you partake of the sacrament of baptism, and that is your entrance. And by belief in the gospel, as they've defined it. And the gospel is Jesus of Nazareth, who has been proven by his resurrection to be Messiah, read that Christ or Savior, 
and thus has been installed as Lord of the world. That is the gospel. Shorthand, the gospel is Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now, that's a common expression that Paul uses at the beginnings of most of his New Testament epistles. There's no question about that. He speaks to Jesus as, right, Lord and Savior. They're saying that is the gospel. Compared to sola fide, which says that a person, listen to the difference now, that a person comes into the covenant community by being made right with God. Do you see the difference? One, you are made right with God by entering into the church. Here you enter into the church by being made right with God. That's night and day. It's absolutely night and day. We are made right with God by belief in the work of Christ. See, what happens is the gospel of NPP focuses on the person of Christ and ignores the work of Christ. But it is the work of Christ that saves. It is his death, burial and resurrection that saves you. First Corinthians 15, read it. So you enter, you are made right with God by belief in the work of Christ, his, Christ, his cross work. That is by imputation, his righteousness to you, your guilt of sin to him punished on his cross. That is how you are made right with God. And when you are made at the moment, you are made right with God by faith alone. And what Christ has done, you are then spirit baptized. That is, you are plunged into the body of Christ, the covenant community of believers by the spirit of God. So it's not baptism and belief into the church through which you are made right. It is you are made right by faith alone. And then at that moment, you are baptized into the body. You are plunged into, you are immersed into the body. The difference is night and day. Let me try to illustrate. Cry this one out for size. Now, this is my illustration. This is not their words. Okay? This is my illustration. In the Old Testament in Israel. You entered into the covenant community of Israel through belief in the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Through circumcision and then the maintaining of the feasts. These were what marked you as part of the covenant community of Israel. Is that right? There's kind of an interesting correspondence. The Shema now becomes belief in the gospel. The gospel is defined as the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. A short theological statement. It's like the Shema. Circumcision becomes infant baptism. The feasts become communion. Now, again, these are my words, not theirs. But I think it catches the flavor of what we're talking about. MPP seems to offer a solution to the whole Roman Catholic Protestant conflict. 
Both Catholics and Protestants affirm that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, our Lord and Savior, right? ECT said, all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Just took care of a billion people. It's compelling. I mean, if you follow down the path, it's very compelling. If justification is all about unity, then what a shame it is that we have allowed the doctrine that was meant to provide our unity to become the basis of our disunity. Get on that path, the Reformation is all one big mistake. Come on back to Rome. Come on back. Now, why do I bring this up? How does it concern us? Well, it concerns us in a number of ways. It concerns us in this way. It touches right here in this church, or at least a couple of years ago, it touched into this church, because the new perspectives on Paul is the genesis behind the church plant in Nampa, Idaho. Several men that I went to school with, and it breaks my heart, bought into the new perspectives on Paul. It's a very scholarly, very heady kind of stuff. These were heady guys, young men. And they bought into it, and they brought it into the church that was up there in Boise, Idaho. And they began teaching it. And two men, two laymen, two untrained, non-seminary trained men who were elders in that church listened for a while and then said, you know what, this is not true. This is not what the gospel is. But there was a massive split on the elder board and there was no way to reconcile. The other men were unable to see it and the seminary trained professionals, you know, with their Greek New Testaments were hammering the thing down. And so Paul Rust and Jim Cox had no choice but to leave. And they left. Long story short, those two men, along with Dennis Wilson, are the elders now of Columbia Bible Church. A new body formed up there, pulling in some of the remnants of others that have been bruised and beaten. So it does touch us. But if justification, just in a macro sense, if justification is not how a, about how a sinner can be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God but is instead about a relationship among people who profess faith in Jesus, then what's been lost is the life-changing power of the Gospel. And the Gospel is not about personal salvation, but is about adherence to a, to a formula that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And Roman Catholics already believe that. Then why do we bother evangelizing anyway? We go to door to door, and we knock on the door, and they said, I go to such and such church. We ought to say, praise the Lord, brother, sister. Third, moving along. The third contemporary threat is what's called the emergent church. People think I was crazy. When I was telling somebody that I was going to handle these three things in one sermon. They said, you're nuts. You're doing good. I don't, too many eyes aren't glazed over yet. Okay, One more. Hang on here. This is the emergent church. None of these can be covered thoroughly in this amount of time, but you can become aware. The emergent church. This refers to a relatively new movement that is still presently on the fringe of evangelicalism. But it won't remain on the fringe for very long. It has no established leaders, no doctrinal statement. Instead, it is a loose affiliation of pastors and churches that share some common ideas and ministry commitments. 
probably the most influential pastor that speaks for this movement is a man by the name of Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren, he holds two degrees in English from the University of Maryland. And he has served as senior pastor and and co-founder of a non-denominational church in the Baltimore area up until recently. McLaren has written a book. His most significant one is called A Generous Orthodoxy, published by Zondervan in 2004. A Generous Orthodoxy. In that book, he lays out what he calls, quote, a manifesto, close quote, of the emerging church movement. So it seems fair to read his book and to draw from his book principles of what the emergent church is all about. Okay, if it's a manifesto. Basically, the driving principle behind the movement of the emergent church is a commitment to reject the way church has traditionally been done and to wholeheartedly embrace the paradigm of postmodernism as the new way of doing church. Okay, so we're going to reject all that has been done before us and we're going to full and wholeheartedly wrap our arms around postmodernism, and that is going to be our new controlling paradigm by which we will do church. Postmodernism, the risk of oversimplification, is a commitment to the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Okay, If you want to try to get something to get your arms around it, postmodernism it says that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You've got your truth, I've got my truth, everybody's got their own truth, and every truth is equally truthful or valid or whatever. I mean, it's, it's intellectual suicide. Nobody really believes it, Okay, because you can't live your life like that. That's for another day. Postmodernism. Let's do church in a postmodern world with a postmodern paradigm. That brings five distinctive characteristics of the emergent church. Okay, these aren't true of all churches, but these are generally true. Here they are quickly. One, they are eclectic. They are eclectic. McLaren says that he has drawn from evangelicals, Protestants, liberals, conservatives, charismatics, fundamentalists, Calvinists, Anabaptists, Anglicans, Methodists and Catholics. He's drawn truth from all of them. Okay, and put it all together. They are ecumenical. McLaren praises Leslie Newbegin. He's a big time mover and shaker in the World Council of Churches. Okay, he says McLaren says of him, quote, one of the theologians who has helped me most, close quote. They are what I'm calling an aesthetic church, aesthetic church. They define church more as your personal pilgrimage and experience with God rather than God's revelation revealed through Scripture. Therefore, not all, but, but many, their worship is a highly aesthetic form of worship. That is, that in one corner of the room, there may be candles and incense, and somewhere else there's someone sitting on a stool playing a guitar and sipping cappuccino, and there's somewhere else there's some other thing going on, and someone over here has got a Bible open and reading Bible verses, and you, I don't know, you just kind of move around and... And participate in all of this and you experience God in the process. It is a scripture doubting church. Okay? McLaren has disdain for the idea of the Bible as inerrant and authoritative. Okay, you might imagine that if he's postmodern, right? And it is an authority-resisting church, if you can say it that way. They refuse to submit to the authority of the Scriptures. That goes when you jettison inerrancy, that you're going to jettison authority. They go hand in hand. 
He pledges his loyalty to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, interestingly enough. Okay? When we started this, I told you all roads lead to Rome. Okay? So does the Roman Catholic Church pledge loyalty to the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. Theologically, McLaren is controlled by the idea that God is love. That is his controlling paradigm. God is love. He uses that to superimpose on all other statements of the Bible to understand God. It's always God is love. That leads him to reject the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Okay, you know what that is, right? Because we've labored away on that. Christ stood as your substitute. Okay? He rejects that. He calls it cosmic child abuse. And instead, he has another theory of the atonement that he calls the powerful weakness theory. You'll love this one, Vincent. Quote, by becoming vulnerable on the cross, by accepting suffering from everyone, Jews and Romans alike, rather than visiting suffering on everyone, Jesus is showing God's loving heart, which he which wants forgiveness, not revenge for everyone. That's why he died. That is nothing but warmed over theological liberalism. That is Harry Emerson Fosdick type stuff. Okay, some of you older folks will know who I'm talking about. It's the same old stuff. Why do I talk to you about the emergent church? Okay, there's no candles in the corner. You know, no cappuccino guitar strummer over here, and we're not going there. Okay, well, but why am I talking to you about that? Here's why I'm talking to you about that. The Immersion Church is attracting some of the best and brightest of the young evangelical minds coming out of the seminaries. It's pulling them in. These young and sensitive guys have become disgusted with the amount of pragmatism and consumerism that characterizes most evangelical churches. There is a good bit of rejection of their parents' form of, of Christianity. And you can read that, the seeker church movement. They're sick and tired of it. They see that it is all about catering to people's selfish desires and, quote, needs. And they're tired of that. They see that it doesn't work. Their parents' rampant consumerism, which characterizes my generation, has turned them off. They want a genuine spiritual experience in which they can encounter God. And they go to many churches and all they find is manipulation and pragmatism and consumerism. And they're rebelling against it. In the process of looking for an experience with God, they have jettisoned sola fide. And they have substituted a cheap mix of mysticism and ecumenicalism and put it together and called it encountering God. And beloved, that will lead you back to Rome. You want a mystical experience in which you can kind of encounter God with all your senses? The Roman Catholic Church has got that nailed down. They've been doing it for centuries. Bells and smells. They're good at it. Okay? They're good at it. And you add to this the most amazing statement that recently appeared just within the last couple of months, a confession by Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels is the founding pastor of Willow Creek Church. 
He is the originator of the seeker church movement. And they they have done a self-evaluation of Willow Creek. And their self-evaluation has led them to a most amazing confession. They say that they have spent 30 years and millions of dollars attracting people and getting them involved in church activities. But they've come to realize that they have very have had very little impact on people becoming true disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an astounding confession to say we brought him in. We churched on church, Harry and unchurched Sally or whatever her name was. And we've got her involved. You know, she comes to this place ten times a week and she does this and he does that. And, you know, we're going and blowing with this thing. But you know what? We haven't made a disciple of Christ out of them. They don't read their Bibles. They don't pray. They don't share their faith. They have no love for God. So Willow Creek's leadership has said they have to rethink the way they're doing ministry. It has to be rethought. Now, I applaud them. For the willingness to own up to the fact that what you've just given the last 30 years of your life to doesn't work. Willow Creek is built on a profound error. A profound error. And that is the idea that people who are, people are seeking not God, but the benefits that they can receive from God without God Himself. What I mean by that is that that people want what God can give them and only God can give them peace, purpose, relief from guilt, right? Joy, happiness, all of those things, good marriages, etc., etc. That's what people are seeking. But it is a profound error to assume that because they are seeking for God's benefits, that that's the same thing as seeking for God. They are not seeking for God. Romans 3.11 says that none seek after God and they're not seeking after him either. So unless Willow Creek repents of this profound and basic error, which in and of itself is a rejection of the truth of sola fide, unless they repent of that, I don't have much hope for them. And my fear is that the next logical step for them is the emergent church. Because people have already, leadership has already been fleeing out of the secret church movement and moving to the emergent church. And if Willow Creek goes that way, It'll become a tidal wave. They have had such an amazing and and massive influence on the way church is done in this country and around the world. People go there and pattern their ministries after them. They run seminars on how to do it. If they go emergent, evangelicalism is going to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And the reason they're going to swallow it hook, line, and sinker is because they are so pragmatic that if it's working for Willow Creek, they're going to do it too. So the whole thing is just going to go on down. Boy, I'm getting riled up now. I didn't think I'd be riled up, but I am riled up. That will impact us. It'll impact you. It'll impact your neighbors, your friends, your family members. When you see how it's going and then you come and say, how come we don't do these things? I can't tell you how many times through the years people have come and asked me, how come we don't follow certain of these big secret churches, some that are right in this area? Why don't we do it? If working for them, just count the noses. You've been so good.
All right, here we go. I'm going to land the airplane, Vincent. Tail hooked down. We're coming in. Okay. Any one of these. ECT, New Perspectives on Paul, the Emergent Church. If we embrace this, it will destroy our passion for the lost. It will destroy it. may not destroy your personal relationship with Christ. Maybe not even that of your children's. But an error gone unchecked just continues to, to perpetuate itself and grow deeper until it will overwhelm. I don't know, third generation, fourth generation, somewhere along the way. I'm getting you at the bottom of your hand out here my conclusion. Three little fill-in-the-blanks, okay? Here's something to take away from all of this. This is a way you can remember it. Blank can be reduced to Roman Catholics or already Christians. Okay, this is not a hard quiz. ECT, okay? ECT, the basic thrust is that Roman Catholics are already Christians. Next blank. NPP, the gospel is about community, not personal salvation. Third blank. I should let you fill that on your own. That'll tell me whether you've been paying attention. The emergent church says the gospel is about experiencing God, not how is a person made right with God. May God deliver us in a spirit of humility from these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your church is not a human creation, but is your creation. It is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus said, the, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against your church. It cannot be overcome. But Lord God, individual churches can be, and we know that for sure as we read the letters in the church, to the churches in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, that Jesus threatens and indeed does come and remove their candle. Our Father, we pray for your protection upon Foothill Bible Church. Lord God, we pray that you would humble our hearts. Even what we have looked at this morning, knowledge puffs up, Father. There is a great opportunity here for arrogance. Great opportunity for feelings of superiority. Great opportunity to say, well, I would never do that. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Lord, we are all capable of the most profound error, and we have all made profound errors. Lord, deliver us, please. Humble our hearts before Your Word. Our Father, when we reject Your Word, we have headed down the path of destruction. May this remain Foothill Bible Church. And may your word rule over us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.